imagine you are a cancer doctor who starts to worry that you too have cancer. But that worry then grows and grows into an all-consuming obsession. Every day, day after day, you go into work where you're having to diagnose and treat people with cancer, which all the while feeds your own horror that you might have it too. Sounds like a version of hell. But that's just what happened to Russell, who I'm talking to for this episode of Speaking of Suicide. We don't often hear from doctors about their own health problems. I guess when we see a doctor, we're so often worrying about ourselves that we don't stop to think about the pressures that caring for us all might have on their mental health. But in this episode, we're going to have an utterly open and honest chat about what it feels like to become mentally ill when you're a healthcare specialist. Speaking of suicide is intended to be open and frank. It doesn't always make for an easy listen. So if you find it too tough, just press pause. And if you need support, I'll give out the details for Mikey's line at the end of the episode. Finally, a special word of thanks to the team at Travis Perkins in Inverness who have funded this particular episode. Without support like theirs, this series couldn't continue. Russell, I'll let you have your slurp of your tea. <laughs> um, was it always a plan to be a doctor? Was that, that the deal from the get-go? Um, I think it was... In the, the school I went to in, in, in the, the mid-90s, I think if you were good at science and um, you were getting the grades, it was something that you were encouraged to do. I don't think it was ever a plan. I think initially I wanted to be a, a forensic pathologist, actually. Mm. Um, uh, but the, the I was aware that the route to that was through medicine. And I became very aware that quickly on it actually looked pretty boring and it wasn't going to be anything like the TV. So we ditched that idea pretty shortly. And at what point in the, the, the medical journey, which I know is a, a kind of long and convoluted one, but when did you start leaning towards cancer as a, a specialist field? Well, I think initially, initially it was, you know, a leaning towards surgery to, to being a surgeon. And throughout the whole of medical school, I thought I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. Oh. So broken bones and all that, that sort of stuff. I knew I didn't want to be a physician. I knew I didn't want to be someone who dabbled in pills and extended ward rounds and things like that I knew that I wanted to be a surgeon I think my temperament suited that um, and that was very clear to me early on that I was like the surgeons I wasn't like the the physicians or any of these other guys what's a surgeon like um kind of matter of fact no not too much nonsense you know sort things out rather than spending a lot of time considering things um you know, a physician will, will routinely um, spend lots of time, very cerebral, very considered, lots of tests. And, and I'm not saying that surgeons are not cerebral or considered, but um, just the, the, the things that you see, the people you see, it, it lends itself more to direct action rather than passive action and observation. And that appealed to me. I... Fixing things with your hands, really, I suppose is what I'm saying. Uh, does it require a different kind of emotional engagement or disengagement? I mean, you're dealing with some very pressured situations. Mm -hmm. You've got someone mm -hmm. under the knife. Does it mean that you need to have a capacity to kind of switch off part of you to be able to do the, the job? And I, I mean, I think so. I think when you're operating on someone, it's, I, I think it's important to remember that what you're doing really isn't normal. It really isn't normal. It's not, not a normal thing to, to pick up a, a very sharp blade and with impunity and not without a second thought, 
slice someone open. And um, so I think you do need to detach yourself from it a little bit, but that, that's actually made quite easy because when you're, when the patient's fully draped up, you don't really see very much of them. It's, you can forget for that hour or two that this is a person and it's a physical task that needs to be done well. And I think that really appealed to me. I also realized that I wasn't going to be very good at orthopedic surgery because I'm terrible at DIY with screws and nails and things like that. And I just wasn't, it wasn't for me. So to answer your question, when did I want to become a cancer surgeon? Well, I decided I wanted to be a general surgeon. First of all, when I did my first general surgery job in air and I fixed my first perforated stomach ulcer. And I thought, oh, this is for me. This is for me. And then the progression into breast surgery and cancer surgery was just natural from there. Cancer, um, I mean, I, I imagine a lot of different um, specialities within, within healthcare are, come with their different pressures and stresses. Cancer, I think of as being particularly bringing a set of, of challenges mm -hmm. um, and stresses. Did you ever have any concerns about moving into to that field? Because as well as the surgery, you're diagnosing and telling people about um, the prognosis for them and all the, the kind of things that come with that. Did you have concerns about that at any point? Absolutely not. It wasn't something that even crossed my mind. Uh, at the start, it was a speciality that I enjoyed, a speciality that I was good at, a speciality that was going to afford me a lifestyle that I wanted because with breast surgery, there's no real on-call commitment now. I mean, it's general surgical training, but you don't do any general surgical on-call. So that was, that was the, uh, the appeal. That fun came later. And what did you enjoy about being a, a breast cancer specialist? Mm -hmm. I mean, what, you know, as the job, what did it appeal apart from being able to live the life you wanted yeah, to do away from Yeah, I think it's it? important to remember that the, the, the overwhelming majority of the, the job of a surgeon and, and the week of a surgeon is not operating. We operate one day a week. The rest of the time we spend in clinic either generating the work that needs the people or patients that need operations on and then looking after them afterwards. So I like the clinics. A lot of people didn't like breast clinics because it just there's a lot of angst. I think there was people you see, oh, your breast patients are always so anxious. They're always so scared. That wasn't something I ever really picked up on at the start. And I quite liked the way that you could come in and because of the one-stop clinic system, you could you could investigate, diagnose, and sort people out in one visit. I really liked that. Um, the surgery, I, I mean, I think I could have done any speciality I wanted to, but I liked the surgery because it was relatively quick. You know, there's very few breast operations that take all day just for one operation. So I liked being able to do lots of cases in a day. And, and the payback from that is that there's not a lot of big aftercare. The patients are not sick afterwards. So it's mostly daycare surgery. And I, I like that ability to do lots in a day rather than just one big case that then takes six, seven weeks to look after afterwards. Short attention span, maybe. <laughs> in your training to become a doctor, then, then surgeon, then cancer specialist, how much were you ever given training in coping with the stresses that come with being a doctor? 
Uh, probably almost none. Almost none. Okay. So, at what point did um, things start to to shift for you? Was there a particular moment when you thought, actually, there's a there's a point of difference here? Mm -hmm. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm starting to. You may not have coined it as get ill at the beginning. Yeah. No, you later did. I mean, I think it's important, first of all, it'd be important to stress that when you start as a consultant, you do become aware of this stuff much more than you were when you were a trainee. When you were a trainee, you're very protected. You go in and you do the clinic and you, you try and impress the boss and then you go. But I can remember the exact date where it, all, where, I, where it all started to shift for me and it was the 5th of December, 2017. It was a Tuesday lunchtime and I was on my day off as I am today. And I'd had lunch and I think I'd been out on my bike or so, I can't quite remember. And I just got really bad belly pain, just right in my stomach. And that's something that happens every now and then, you know. But just almost instantly the thought came into my head, oh, this could be, uh, this could be stomach cancer. And I'm sure I'd had that thought before when I'd had a similar discomfort, when I drank too much coffee or something like that. But this time it stuck. And the way I would describe it is... It was almost like all the circuit boards in my brain frazzled in that very instant. So that was, and I remember I went for a haircut and I remember it was all I was thinking about when I was getting a haircut. And I had to pick my son up from school and it was all I was thinking about. So that's when it started. And then after that, you know, maybe the next day started to just get a bit of discomfort under my right ribs. So very obviously that meant that my, my stomach cancer, which had just burst into being in that very second what had spread to my liver and then that became a focus really for quite a few months discomfort where my liver was and that really built and built and built so I, I could tell you yeah I've told you the exact day it started I remember it very clearly how debilitating did it become I mean it started as a thought and, and obviously was, was there in the background, but how mm -hmm. much did it invade um, the rest of, your, rest of your life? How did it grow? I think, I think it grew pretty quickly, actually. I don't really feel like it was a, a very general thing. I think that, that feeling of discomfort in, underneath my right-hand ribs very, very quickly morphed into quite frequent poking and prodding, self-examination, to see if I could feel my liver, because I know how to feel someone's liver. So I was doing that to myself. And that became a a pretty regular feature of my day, actually, doing that just to make sure. Um, which, of course, just made the discomfort worse. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think I think it became quite invasive very early on. And not to the point that it got to but it, it became very quickly a very prominent feature of my behaviour and my thinking. Now, most of us, if we think something's wrong with us, we just go to the doctor mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and ask them to check us out. Did mm -hmm. you do that? No, I didn't. Why not? Um, because I think really deep down, despite the fact that this was becoming quite a strong thought process and obsession, I, I think I knew deep down that there was nothing wrong with me. I think, you know, I, I, so I didn't feel 
that I needed to go. I did go to the GP, but because I was aware that my mental state was starting to slide, but I didn't mention my liver or my pain. I think because I was scared of getting a test. Maybe scared that it might have been real. Um, well, I think that's a completely reasonable thought, and I think all the, all the way along, I don't think I was probably scared of. Well, yeah, scared of finding out if it was real or not, but just that whole process of waiting for a test, that's that's the worst part for me. How difficult was it to continue going into the clinic day after day and dealing with people who did have cancer? Mm -hmm. um, did that start to become challenging? I think that's a really interesting question because to start off with, I would say no. In fact, actually, I think early on, you know, and for the first year or so of this, I think I was actually aware that it made me a better doctor. I think it made me more aware of what the person on the other side of the of the room was going through. So I think I became more empathetic. I became more understanding of, of the reactions and the thought processes and the fear. So I think that line between me and the patient had, had got to maybe a situation where it was maybe a bit too far to where it was probably just about right. Um, now, obviously, becoming mentally ill is not a great way to achieve that. Um, but at, at the start, for the first year or so, I felt actually, I actually felt that that was a positive of what I was going through, that it actually made me a better doctor. I think it became a problem later on, particularly towards the end of last year, 2021, when those lines really didn't have much space between them at all. At what point did it go from being, in a weird way, beneficial, mm -hmm. because you could empathise in a way that, that, that you possibly couldn't have before? Mm -hmm. And what point did it cross over into being a problem I mean how bad did it get yeah so I think definitely um, 2021 was a was a general slide towards it becoming really bad and I, I think definitely towards the end of 2021 um, I became aware that that those lines were becoming increasingly blurred um, I was really finding it very, very difficult to distinguish and differentiate between what the patient was going through and what I imagined. Not, that's a wrong word. So I believed that I was about to go through at some point. Now, the, the fixations, the, the concerns change, changed from month to month. It was never the same thing. I've probably had about 40 different cancers over the last four years. Um, but I then really started to just not be able to, to remove myself from the process. And I don't mean that I was becoming over emotional or you know, trying to hug patients and really telling them that I knew what they were going through because I would never dare to do that because I don't. Um, I might have an inkling, but I was really, really starting to feel that every day at work, I was taking part in my own worst nightmare um, and I was I was actually 
not just taking part in it, but actually inflicting it on other people. And I know that's not true, and I knew that wasn't true. But I would come into work uh, really concerned about what I felt I was about to do to people. Do to them in terms of telling them they had cancer? Correct, correct. Yeah. And I think, you know, I would imagine that, that that's, some, that's obviously something that no one ever forgets and they probably no, never forget the person that tells them. But I was starting to feel like I was doing it to them. And I know that's, a, that, that's maybe a subtle difference, but I think there is a difference between telling someone and then going, oh, but I know how to fix it. But it's a bit like I've stuck a knife into you, but it's okay, I know how to fix it after I've stabbed you. There's a, there's a, I'm very conscious there's another layer to all this because yeah. in the middle of all this, this four years of hell, you actually had to phone me up and tell me I had cancer. Now, I should say that we knew each other before then. Mm -hmm. We'd cycled together. Um, we, were, we were pals anyway. Um, you're right. That moment sticks with you absolutely. I will never forget it. Um, it's a big haunter. Were you haunted? By all these conversations did they did they linger with you the fact you'd had to go and stick a knife into someone were they kind of replaying and and remaining as part of all this well it's not maybe haunting me I wasn't losing any sleep over it and actually the one of the great blessings from this whole process was I was always able to sleep I was ne never had any problems sleeping um, so no I didn't lose any sleep over these I wouldn't say the conversations haunted me in that I was taking them home with me, certainly not on an individual basis. I think that there are certain patients that always get you, the young ones in particular, or, or someone you know. Um, but no, no, I don't, I wouldn't say I was haunted, but it was that moment that knowing what I'm about to do, because once you've done it, there's someone else that you need to do it. <laughs> or someone else you need to see and you never really had much time for reflection. But I think it just kept adding up that I was doing this to people. And there's a couple of times I can clearly remember almost seeing, seeing, feeling like I was talking to myself, that it was me over the other side of the, the room. I mean, I find it in a weird sort of disengaged way because we've been through it this very whole thing, I have breast cancer, you are my surgeon. Um, but I find it absolutely fascinating that business of you kind of coming over to my side and from everything you've said, actually really putting yourself in a position of understanding. I mean, you know, you were going through all the stuff that I went through. Um, you know, as a consequence of learning I had had cancer. And you're mm -hmm. right, waiting for a test result is the worst bit. When I had my breast cancer, I, I used to sing and I stopped singing because I thought it, my lungs were, were, were hurting and, and I must have cancer in my lungs. And then I hurt my toe one day and I thought, oh, it's gone down into my toes. I mean, you just, you're thinking. Uh, every bit of you suddenly has, has cancer. So I'm sort of in a weird way intrigued by the place you got to Though I think it, you know, obviously a, a really difficult place to have got to. I mean, I think not to belittle what anyone with the diagnosis goes through, but I would venture to say that um, 
the, my fear and my mental state at that time was could well uh, and probably was just as bad. I, I don't suppose it matters if the fear is real or imagined. No, because you know what, when when um, when you first find a lump, you imagine all kinds of things. Mm. Anyway, your imagination takes over and it continues to take over even when you've had your diagnosis. You, mm -hmm. you imagine every possible scenario and it goes round, 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 yeah. round, round. Yeah. Never stops going round. So actually, what's real and imaginary... I don't think it really matters. It, it, it starts to blur. It and really that, does. And one, one, of, one of the few comforting thoughts I always had was that if I have got something or if I do end up getting diagnosed with something, it can't be... It's just impossible for it to be any worse than this. When did you start admitting that you were going through this? I think it was very quick to do that, actually, almost right from the start. I think I always felt that I had something like this in me. I think I was always aware that um, that I had, yeah, that I had a, a, this within my being. That you know, I was sometimes on that on that line where. I could slip into to poor or real problematic mental health. So in a way it didn't come as a great surprise to me. I always thought it was maybe in the post a little bit. Um, so I was actually very, very quick to realise what was going on and I would speak to my nearest and dearest and my colleagues. So I was actually very happy and very pleased to talk about it right from the off. Um, that that realization didn't necessarily translate into any meaningful action, however. <laughs> In that it, it definitely took me a couple of years to start to seek help. Other than desperately reading self help books that I got from Amazon. What would you look up? <laughs> yeah, well I mean I think I was aware that it was health anxiety and I think I knew what was driving it and I was aware of you know, and I did a lot of reading and I sort of understood what was happening to me, but that understanding did not translate into any meaningful ability to, to fix it. But to what extent do you think that we, we expect our healthcare professionals to almost be above getting ill? That, that we sort of see them as, as superheroes, a bit invincible. Mm -hmm. I'd say almost particularly in your field of care, mm -hmm. because, you know, um, I was saying to you once, thanks for saving my life or something like yeah, that. No, and I it was that stark. I, I find that really, really uncomfortable. <laughs> I, I really did. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't really think about it like that. Well, but that's a... Yeah, oh, you'd get a big it's head my head truth of it. Yeah. Yeah. But you'd get a big head otherwise, wouldn't you? And some people might say surgeons have all got big heads. <laughs> well, they so might. Like, what, what's, the difference, what's the difference between God and a surgeon? God doesn't think he's a surgeon. <laughs> but my question was, do you think we think that, that healthcare professionals are sort of a bit beyond getting ill? We don't cast them in that, in that role and I'm not sure how we deal with it when they do. Yeah, but I don't know if that's a bad thing. I think it's probably a very necessary thing. You know, you, you don't want to, you don't want, if you're crumbling, you don't want to see your doctor crumbling in front of you as well. And I think, I think it is, it's all when a doctor gets ill or a colleague's ill or, you know, 
I think it, it's always newsworthy. I don't mean newsworthy in terms of being on the BBC, but if someone in the hospital's not well or has had an operation or has been off for a while, it's definitely noteworthy amongst the profession. Because I think whilst the patient should, and, and in a way, shouldn't expect us to be invincible, but should in a way expect us to be not falling apart in front of their very eyes. Um, I think we expect that of ourselves as well. And I think that's, that's, a, that's an issue. I think we expect ourselves to be indestructible. That's a pressure. I think it's only a pressure once you realise that you're not. Once you're not, I don't think, I think it's just, particularly surgery, surgery can, can, or certainly used to be a very, I'm very hesitant to use the words macho in 2022, but you know, it was, you know, it was, it's a hard job and it attracts certain characters. And, you know, I think to, to my experience was, I mean, for me, you know, when I went off work at the end of 2021, I think that was quite unusual. That was quite unusual for a, for a surgeon, a doctor, but I think particularly surgeons, I may be wrong, but I only see it from our point of view, to, to make a conscious decision to remove themselves from the profession. Because the, the, um, the lore of the profession is full of stories about guys who just were told to go and broke down before, and didn't realise it because they kept going. I'm going to come back to, to that point in which you, you stepped away mm -hmm. from work in a moment. But how much of a frustration was it that you couldn't fix yourself? Oh, it was incredibly frustrating and, and really distressing, actually. Because what my, you know, if you look at what I've always done, you know, school, university, surgical training jobs, there was always something to aim for. There was always something to achieve. And how did you do that? Well, you did the work. You did hard work works. So to answer your question, it was incredibly frustrating because I knew what was going on. You know, I knew that my thinking was wrong or broken. I understood the process of the checking and that was feeding it and just making it worse and giving me more symptoms. But I, and I knew what the theory behind fixing it was. But despite all that, despite all that hard work, I couldn't do it. And that was one of the few times, apart from two driving tests, which I'll happily admit to, that was one of the few times I've really felt that I actually truly failed at something, that there was a goal and I didn't manage it. It was really confusing as well as frustrating, actually. In fact, I would say it was equally confusing. That f sense of failure, mm -hmm. how... How low did you get before you said, you know, enough is enough? Mm -hmm, Actually, mm -hmm. I can't fix this. Mm -hmm. Where was the bottom of the slide? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I did seek help from uh, professional help before I got to the bottom of that slide. And it was a very traditional uh, CBT way of going about things, so cognitive behavioural therapy. Um, and it didn't work for me. By no means am I... I um, being negative about it as a as an intervention, and I think you know it probably does work very well for lots of people. I think it didn't work for me because I knew that my thinking was broken. I was aware of that. I had insight, 
So being told your thinking's broken, I was like, yeah, I know that already, but I can't fix it. So, because if I could have thought my way out of this, I would have done it by now. So that didn't really work. So I grumbled on with that for a year or so and just getting more frustrated and more down and more anxious and spending more and more time checking. You know, I could lose a whole day, and literally a whole day, a whole day off work, checking uh, various bits and pieces of, of your anatomy. I think I've said to you before that the, the, the inside of your mouth is a great place to spend a lot of time if you don't know what you're looking at. <laughs> looking for cancer? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, you can, you can imagine, you, well, you can see all sorts. And if you, you, you're under this impression that you should know what you're looking for because you've got a medical degree, you don't have a clue what you're doing, <laughs> you know? But you can make it all up and you can spend, you know, literally days. It's a great place to go if you've got health anxiety, you know, it passes the time. Um, but to answer your question, when did it get really bad? Um, so anyway, that, that, that traditional technique just, it just didn't get to me. And I'm not saying I was too clever for it to work, but I knew what was wrong. So the fact that my thinking was wrong, wasn't a great revelation to me. So towards the end of 2021, sought out another therapist who took an alternative approach and um, who, I mean, we can come back to the ins and outs of that if you like, but I felt that that approach was very instrumental in my, my recovery as it is at the moment. Um, but towards the end of 2021, when that line just got so blurred, so blurred, that line between me and the patient became so blurred, I was finding it really, really difficult to distinguish between me and them. I was finding it difficult to concentrate. Um, particularly in the operating theatre, which was a real scare for me. Um, I think there was one particular day where I felt I really wasn't concentrating as well as I should be. And it was that day I decided enough was enough. That I was going to do something, I was going to remove myself and I needed time to get better and, and remove myself from work before it was done for me. Because I think if it was done for me, I think that would have finished me. I wouldn't have gone back. We'll continue with Russell's story in just a moment. If listening to this is striking a chord with you, don't forget it's okay not to be okay. And if you need someone to talk to, you can text Mikey's line on 07786 20 77 55 or contact them via Messenger, web chat or Twitter, Sunday to Thursday, 6pm to 10pm, Friday to Saturday, 7pm to 7am. So you moved away from work. How difficult was that? The decision was really easy, actually, because I felt I didn't have another choice. It was either it was either go and take some time out and try and get better, or I was aware that I was going to make a big mistake and really harm someone. Mm. Uh, and then the decision would have been taken out of my hands. So it was actually a really easy decision to make. Um, however, I did hugely surprise myself by breaking down in floods of tears in front of all my colleagues on New Year's Eve 2021, which was my last day, as, um, as I left the building, which um, was a huge surprise to me. I wasn't expecting that. So that, that was hard. That was hard. Because um, I didn't know if I was ever going to come back. 
I don't think that was really upsetting me, actually, the prospect of not going back. Well, OK. But I, I, to this day, actually, I'm not really sure why I broke down so much. Maybe it was through a sense of abject failure. I'm not sure. Did you ever consider changing tack in terms of the area of medicine you specialise in? Did you con connect it to cancer? Um, could you have have gone and worked in a different area? Could you have gone and, and got better at DIY and done orthopaedic <laughs> <laughs> surgery instead? You know, did you consider moving away from cancer? Not at all. I didn't consider moving from breast surgery at all because I'm so far down the line now in terms of the training that the, the, the prospect of, of retraining is totally abhorrent to me. <laughs> I just couldn't face it. There's no way I could face it. Um, and... <sighs> I think I do wonder sometimes actually whether I'm not sure the subject matter in terms of cancer being my my big fear and I suppose it's important to stress that it's only cancer I'm worried about COVID didn't make me up nor down I'm not worried about getting Alzheimer's or multiple multiple sclerosis or anything like that none of this other stuff hits me it's just cancer and is that because that's what I work with well I think it's it wouldn't be hard to make that assumption but then you know if you're a traffic cop you're probably you know if you've got this in you like I had and have you probably get really scared about your nearest and dearest going out in their car so I'm not really sure the subject mattered in terms of what it was so I think if I'd been doing something else I probably would have just become really scared of being a diabetic or having a heart attack or bone cancer or something like that you know so I, so no I didn't consider it and when I went off work I always thought if I'm done I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm out completely. If I don't go back to breast surgery, I'm out completely. That must have been a big thing to face too, the prospect of that. I was actually really comfortable with that thought, actually. That didn't really um, affect me too much. I, I was very clear on that, that thought in my head that if, if I did recover and remember at Christmas time last year, I had no idea if I was going to get better or not. I had no idea. I knew I needed to because I was kind of running out of options a little bit. I wasn't considering suicide. I knew it was maybe an option if I didn't get better. Really? Yeah, I, I kind of felt that, you know, that coming off work, this was such a big thing to do. I kind of felt that I was circling the drain round about New Year time. And this was not a process that I'd fully formed in my head, hadn't made any plans. But I knew that if I didn't get better, that it was maybe part of the equation at some point in the future. Once you found your way of turning this around, mm -hmm. um, which you alluded to was, a, was a, a, a therapy, how quickly did it turn around? How, how, can you remember the moment when you felt a kind of lift of this, how did it manifest itself when you felt? Yeah, so I went bad. off work um, 31st of January, uh, December, sorry, last year. And I think the day that I started to get better, now I didn't feel any better on this day. I felt absolutely horrendous that day, but the day I started to get better was, I've written this down, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I know I was going to visit my brother in Aberdeen that weekend. So it was the 4th of March this year, was the day that I would say, I started to get better because um, I'd, I'd, I'd started 
kind of peering into the dark chasm of my mouth again after several months of not bothering doing it after an ENT appointment and being told everything was fine. And I just noticed something that I'd previously been worried about looked a little bit bigger, looked different. God knows, I don't know why I looked at it that day, but I just did. Anyway, and then all that fear, all that, that panic and flood came. Oh, this is definitely cancer. He was wrong. It's got worse. It's got bigger, blah, 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 blah. And I think completely due to the therapy and the stuff that I'd been working on, I was very aware at that point that I had a choice. And I was aware that I had, and I'd never been aware of having a choice before. I was aware that I had a choice that, and I'm not going to delve into cliche here about you can always do what you've always done and all that sort of stuff. But I was aware that I could spend the rest of the day poking and prodding this and looking at it and really not move anything further forward. And then I'd end up having a panic and phoning a colleague and trying to get seen and all that sort of stuff. Or I could do something different. And something different was, right, I'm going to leave this for three weeks. I'm not going to look at it for three weeks. I chose three weeks because two seemed too quick and four seemed too long. <laughs> so you're not going to look at this for three weeks. So I remember I set the timer on my phone you get you get you're, you're gonna get 10 minutes mate 10 minutes you can look at this for 10 minutes when the buzzer goes you're done and actually the buzzer went and i stopped and i went to my brothers played golf etc etc and by the end of the three weeks i was actually debating whether i was going to bother doing the check or not and i didn't feel a strong need to do it did you do it i did because i was aware just um, because of the sort of I was aware that I'd made a promise to myself um, that I was going to do it so I did it and it was fine I was like oh that's that looks like it did it six months ago fine move on so I think that was definitely that three weeks was the time where the recovery started now I'm not saying now that I don't have the thoughts I have them every day, every day. These thoughts and these sensations are still with me, but I don't do anything about them. I don't, yeah, I don't feed it. I don't feed the beast, if you like. So yeah, that was that was the day that, that and I'm very, I'm very, very wary, and I don't want to come across when I talk about stuff like this to, to yourself or people to work. I don't want to be one of these people who eulogizes about their mental health recovery because I think that's quite disingenuous because I don't think you're ever really cured. I think you just manage better and maybe you manage better and better and better as time goes on. So now I'm definitely managing better. Um, but I'm not cured. You never cure a diabetic. Why would you cure someone with a chronic mental health issue? You're back at work. Correct, yep. Um, how difficult? Was that, was that not scary? Stepping back into the, the mm -hmm. place that had been a source of, you know, hell, mm -hmm. nightmares. So what I did do, once I was aware that A, I was considering going back, so that would have been about middle of March, I suppose, that I thought, no, this is on the cards, that I could, I could go back, started going back up to the unit just kind of hanging around talking to my secretary I never really went to the clinical areas to start off with 
and just every now and then I'd go up and just venture a bit deeper into the department and see how I felt. And um, when I'd made the decision that I was going to go back, I obviously engage with my manager and my colleagues. So I went up to, I wanted to find out how bad it was because obviously we think with COVID and stuff, things have been pretty bad. So I wanted to prepare myself for that because I knew that was a dangerous thing for me to, to then say to people, oh, well, your operation's not going to be for six weeks or whatever and see that shock. I knew that was something that triggered me before. I'm very aware that the word trigger is cliche as well, but there we go. Um, so I prepared myself for it. And I think I knew what it was going to be like, so I was able to cope with it. So actually, when it came to going back, I wasn't worried about it at all. I wasn't worried about it at all. I felt that I was in a position where I was, where those lines between me and the patient were now at a healthy margin again. And I feel like I'm back to that point of being a better doctor for it. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything that you think we, uh, anyone listening to this, can take away from your experience that we should learn from it? Either about how we deal with and view our health professionals or how we deal with colleagues who are in, maybe in this kind of way. I mean, I think, you know, we need to talk about these things so we do learn from them. But what Mm. do we learn from this? Because it's quite a specific, unique thing that in a sense you've been through but then lots of us will have had our own unique mental health challenges. Yeah, I, think, I think in a more, a more general point of view, I think the thing I became very aware of, and as I said earlier, I was very open about it. I was more than happy to tell anyone who would listen. Um, but what I became very aware of was, and I'm sure this is true of any profession, so I don't want to just tar the, the medical profession with this brush. Um, if I'd hurt my back or if I'd broken my leg, if I'd had a cancer operation, people would come with nauseating regularity to ask me how I am. How's your back? Still giving you trouble? How's your wound healing? You know, all that sort of stuff. After being told that I was going through this mental health problem, challenge, illness, however you want to describe it, I think there were very few people in most walks of life, not just work, in general, I'm not talking about my nearest and dearest. I'm not talking about them at all. Um, but on a professional point of view or a, a sort of acquaintance point of view, very people would come up and say, how's your, how's your mental health? People, I, I think we've talked before, you know, I've said this before to anyone who'll listen, that the, the question, are you okay? I find incredibly infuriating because in polite society that demands one answer, yes. In fact, the answer is in the question. Um, so I, f- I find that hard. Are you okay? You said this to me, and I hit straight back at you with, what do you want people to say yeah, when you're in that position? Um, what is the right thing? I mean, there is no right thing, mm-hmm. but what should people say to someone who's going been through the kind of challenges that you've been through? Mm-hmm. I, think, I think if the person who, who has a problem has been open enough I've had the benefit of being able to think about this answer. <laughs> I think I think now I think the person who if the person who has the problem has been felt willing to tell you about it, then I I would feel, certainly from my point of view, that that is an invitation and and, and a pass to just ask and not to euphemize it. 
don't know if euphemize is a word, but we'll make it up just now, um, to not skirt around the issue. Um, because I, I often feel that are you okay is um, you kind of done your bit. Are you okay? Please don't say no. <laughs> Please don't say no because I don't have time for this. You know, whereas the person who who doesn't or isn't comfortable with asking, how's your mental health? How's your OCD? How's your depression? How's your anxiety? If they're not comfortable and not prepared within themselves to, to deal with the answer, then then actually it's almost better if you don't ask, you know, rather than just saying, are you okay? Because you won't get an honest answer to, are you okay? So final question then, is there anything you think we could, should be doing differently with relation to specifically healthcare staff like yourself who are in a very pressured position, have been in an, e in an even more pressured position over the past couple of years with everything we've faced with COVID. What could we be doing differently, even if it was one thing that would, would help support people differently? I think, again, I've been very keen to avoid cliche, but I think I don't think you can put it better than it is actually perfectly all right to, to struggle. Uh, and I think to get that message out that it's okay to be struggling and it's okay to be finding it hard. But I think over and above that, um, what I would hope if this does any good is to just maybe make people feel more comfortable to say that themselves because you never know the person you're saying it to might be feeling exactly the same way and then all of a sudden you've started to develop a support structure. And I think that ability to debrief, particularly in our profession, that ability to maybe sit down once every couple of weeks and go, oh, that, you know, that was that was hard, that was tragic. That's th this one's really this this patient, this one, this case, whatever. Uh, I don't want to depersonalize it. Um, that's really getting to me. This is th that one that that lady's affected me. That patient's affected me, and I think that's what we don't do. We don't provide that that level of. It is there. It is there, but it's not, it's not common. Thank you for your honesty. And I think bravery in speaking up about these things. I That's think. interesting. I've often been, when I've spoken about this, people have often said I've been brave. I don't feel like that at all. I, I don't feel brave at all. Because if I'd broken my leg, I'd be talking about it. You wouldn't say if I was brave if I'd broken my leg. Yeah, I think, I mean... We could go round and round and talk about this all day. And we probably will as soon as I've turned it off. But I think, I think there is a, a, a bravery and honesty because I think honesty can expose us to all kinds of, of difficult stuff. And I think it is brave to be honest. Um, and I think valuable. And I think once you've seen the value of it, um, then like yourself, you say, well, it's not brave. It's just, you know, it's... it's the right thing to do but we will keep talking okay. well, I appreciate you saying that I'll, ta I'll take it I'll take you'll it you'll take it <laughs> <laughs> you're a tough guy to compliment <laughs> well I hope you continue to be well um, because I for one am very grateful that um, of the kind of work that you're doing supporting and treating people that I've been one of a reminder of Mikey's line, if you or someone you know needs help or advice, you can text 07786 207755 
or contact them via Messenger, web chat or Twitter, Sunday to Thursday, 6pm to 10pm, Friday to Saturday, 7pm to 7am. Now here's Shona McPherson from Mikey's Line with a few thoughts for you to mull over. Two themes that came out from listening to Russell's interview there. One is his passion that if someone like himself is open and honest about their mental health, about their struggles, it's so important and meaningful for them that that is met with open and honesty back. And it's incredibly discouraging if we pluck up the courage to speak that somebody skirts around the issue or just says, are you okay? And doesn't and wants an answer of yes. So I think that's incredibly important and that came across very strongly. And the second thing that struck me was Russell's process from or journey from learning that he had health anxiety, that kind of long journey to seeking help that was useful for him. Um, he describes these unhelpful thoughts that he had, the, sort of the rumination and the, the obsession that came from that, and how these thoughts led to behaviours. And um, he said he was quick to realise that, and it, wonderfully he was able to speak to his nearest and dearest. But in and of itself, that didn't seem to bring around much change for him. And then he spoke about something that many of us do, um, of seeking self-help books. And again, that can be useful for many of us, but for him, that, that wasn't what he needed. He said again, he said there was no behaviour change. And that it took him a couple of years to seek professional help. And I'm really struck by this gap of knowing something's wrong and being able to get help to create behaviour change. And Russell, you know, by our culture, we go, gosh, he's, he's a surgeon. Um, culture would tell us that he's one of the safe ones, one of the lucky ones, one of the smart ones. Um, but whatever our job, whatever our qualification, we're humans, we're scared. And um, we don't always know where to turn or want to turn to that place. Um, and yet he did, he did find the courage and then he tried a therapy that wasn't helpful for him. Um, and he talked about CBT just not being quite the right fit for him. Um, definitely CBT is a, is a, is a useful therapy and, and in the cases of um, anxiety it can be very helpful but in this case it wasn't. And that can be incredibly discouraging for us when we turn for help and it just isn't quite right. But yeah, thankfully um, he carried on and then he did find a therapist and a therapy that was a pr helpful for him. And I found the specifics that he shared around that useful as well. The her therapy helped him see that he had a choice around controlling his behaviour. We don't always feel that we have a choice controlling our thoughts, um, but he was able to to sort of create boundaries around his behaviour and with time the urges to check um, decreased for him and I'm sure that therapist taught him many useful skills around thought processes, around accepting emotion um, and my understanding is that, that Russell through his health anxiety it's, it's a, a form of OCD, um, obsessional compulsive disorder and these can be so crippling they can take other forms as as you probably know if you're struggling with any form of OCD it's really important you know it's not your fault you're not stupid and it's not an easy thing to 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 deal with and to live with and Russell's example shows us that yeah he was he had to leave his work he felt incredibly unwell and his example also shows us that help is there that we can learn skills that we're not taught in everyday life 
about how to be with difficult emotions and how to to live with these um, difficult thoughts and emotions in a way that doesn't take over our life to the same extent. So if you are struggling in any way, please don't be alone with that and seek help. Thank you for listening. Huge thanks to Shona and all the team at Mikey's Mind for the work they do and to Russell, of course, for sharing his story. This episode was sponsored by Travis Perkins in Inverness and the podcast platform is supported by D&D Paving Limited. Please do like, share and comment about the podcast and if you want to get involved by sponsoring an episode or telling your story, you can get in touch with Mikey's Line. Speaking of Suicide is an adventurous audio production. The music is Nana by Tom Ireland.